Uh, in case you missed last week, there's a website you can go to, eastlaketricities.com slash talks. Or either we have a podcast thing you can follow along to in case this interests you or whatever. But just a quick recap to kind of get us all on the same page. We talked about how there um, are different types of ways uh, to love, right? And so uh, when people go, oh, gosh, why can't we all just love one another? Uh, they obviously mean a specific form of love. They don't mean like let's all get married together, like, or let's all be romantically involved in, with each other, or even that we should all be friends together. Like the, the, the admonition or the encouragement to be friends with everybody is just, it's, it's overwhelming. Like there are definitely some people where you're like, I know I'm supposed to be nice to you, but I, will, I cannot be your friend. Um, and that, that seems to be okay. We, we defined the difference between romantic love and friendship last week uh, as, as two very different things because why? In romantic relationships, uh, the, the attention is focused on the other person. The, the focus or the, uh, the, the attraction is to the other. Whereas in friendships, it's a shared attraction that is towards something. So um, there's something out there that, we're, that, that is attractive to both of us, and therefore we look at it and go, you too, you like this too? And then every once in a while, um, even though you start off as friendships and we're both attracted to the same thing, then the attention be like, it goes like, oh, and then friendship moves towards romantic, and you're like, oh, you like this too? Me too? Hey, I like you. You know what I mean? So how are you doing? That's, that can be, those things can evolve into that, but many times they will start with something that's out there that has kind of the, the attention for us or the, the piece that is the attraction for us. Friendships revolve around things, and by the way, this is not new information. This is like, I know, I know, I know, I know. I get it, but there's a piece that's, that's, uh, that I want to draw attention to later that reflects on this, so we just got to get in the same mindset. Uh, Friendship revolves around things, things that are both good and things that can be bad. Good things like uh, a work that really does provide like good value for you. Like you can be in, engaged in vocational work where we feel like we're doing a good thing for the community or for the world and we're doing this thing together. And so there's like companionship and com- camaraderie and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's hobbies, there's fantasy football. Um, all kinds of things are things that we like. We're both interested in the same things, therefore we like each other and this is the draw of our friendship. And then there are things that ha- are bad but they, they, even though they're bad, they develop into really good friendships. So it's typically the survival of something that's bad, surviving war. I mean, how many war movies or books have been made about you know, two friends who became friends because they fought together in the trenches of war, and then, the, the, and then, and then all of a sudden the war's over and they go back, and, and then it's like the adventures of trying to figure out how does this friendship continue, and one of them bought a shrimp boat, and so there's all kinds of different things that can be taking place about this friendship that was developed. God, somebody got that. Thank you in the back. Uh, um, and then uh, also, uh, yeah, somebody, somebody, else, somebody on this side is going, it's Forrest Gump, don't you get it? God, you're Anyways, uh, surviving high school, those are things that we survive um, in bad ways, but like that thing kind of completes. And then what happens is in friendships, if that object, if that object of our common affection is ever removed, many times what happens is the relationship begins to dissolve. It may not go away completely, but you are not friends with the, your, the, the people that were, you went to college with. You're probably not as good of friends unless the friendship evolved out of college and now we're both, we happen to graduate at the same time and now we both work or live in the same city or, or this. But for the most part, that, those college relationships were great. You have great fond memories. You still consider them to be friends, but the object that kind of glued you guys together is now gone. And so I don't hang out with my buddy Jake as much as we used to. Um, I still like the guy. I'm still really impressed that he's able to build his own shed in his own pool. Um, but uh, we don't work together. And so it's like I, I'm watching from a distance and Facebook's great for that, but whatever. Anyways, remove the glue and many times the relationship begins to fade. Now, 
Uh, because of that, because that's true of relationships, that when I and when we together look at the four gospel accounts, which when I say that, what I mean is uh, that the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were all each written by an individual who either had uh, firsthand accounts or secondhand based on reliable sources of the teaching and the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, and then those things were captured for us through the church for 100 years, and they make their way into our, in, into our Bible or that thing that um, sits on your shelf or whatever. So, in each of those accounts, um, Jesus does something at the very beginning or towards the beginning of those, uh, of those books, right? Um, he goes off, and one of the first things he does is called the calling of the disciples, and he does it in stages. He'd go first to, like, Peter and his brothers who are fishing in a boat, and he says, hey, Peter, um, why don't you leave the family fishing industry? Come and follow me. Then he shows up to a guy named Matthew who would write Matthew and say, Matthew, you're a tax collector, but why, why, why don't you just leave that sort of business to the side? Come and follow me. So it was this invitation to follow, which is how the religious system worked. At some point, you reached an age where there wasn't, they didn't go to schools. You were taught, you were raised in your family, and then every once in a while, if you wanted to find a trade, you would go and uh, be a protege or a, a mentee or whatever under somebody who's an authority. And in, in the religious world, you would find a rabbi, and that rabbi would have a certain amount of disciples. He would have to limit the number of disciples because he can't have too many. So he selects his 12, and they go, and they have access to Jesus um, that nobody else really did. Jesus would have plenty of followers, plenty of people who followed him everywhere and, and went what he taught. But he had a select group of people that when he taught something, um, he would then preach it to the crowds, and then every once in a while he would come to the disciples and be like, so here's what I basically was talking about. Like, or if they had questions, he, he, he didn't do Q&A with the audience because can you imagine doing that with 5,000 people? Um, we don't do Q&A here, and there's only like 75 of you here right now. So he, we, we wouldn't do that just because it's a waste of time. But in those moments, he would go to his disciples and be like, do you guys have any questions? Do you have any of this? So they had unique access. They got to see things and hear things. Nobody else got to see and hear. That was the glue. Jesus knew this too. That's the glue. These 12 men probably would not be friends outside of this environment, right? Because for one reason, Judas was a zealot, which meant he believed that the uh, Roman uh, invaders, the people who are in power, should be fought at. Like, we can take them over with force. Uh, you've got Matthew, who's kind of like a co-conspirator. Like, in, in terms of, um, he would just be like, you know what, they're already here. Fighting them is useless. They're, it's Rome. Why would you ever sign your own death warrant? Let's not do that. Instead, let's make money off the fact that they're here. They're trying to tax, but they don't want to have too much influence, so I can become a tax collector. So he, he works with them. Then you've got Peter, who takes the approach of, like, I'm going to be a fisherman. And what other job, vocation is it? Like, I don't give a rip what goes on in politics. I just want to fish. That's what I want to do. I, I come here, so I don't have to hear any of that that, right? So they come from all different areas of life, and they find themselves together in the 12. And it's not because they have shared uh, common, like we like the same things. Many of them liked lots of different things and had different approaches to it. The thing that kept them together, and Jesus knew this, was the fact that he had called them, was the fact that they were disciples, that we are a team and we're doing this together. And we are following after our master Jesus, and there have been roller coaster rides in terms of popularity, and then and then really not popularity, and then uh, we feel safe because he's doing like crazy things with miracles that we've never seen, and then we feel like we're always in danger, all kinds of stuff. There was a tight knit brotherhood involved in that sort of thing. Jesus knew this, which is why, and this is the verse that we looked at last week in in John chapter fifteen, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples. 
He knows that his time is coming up. He's about to be, uh, it, 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 he knows there's a light at the end of the tunnel. He knows his time here on earth was temporary. And his absence could potentially be the ungluing of the thing that held these 12 together. And what he wants them to do is go on and expand this and, and, and make this even broader. So he has this conversation with them. John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my command. Love one another the way that I have loved you. This is the very best way to love. Put your life on the line for your friends. You are my friends. When you do the things I command you, I'm no longer calling you servants. Because servants don't understand what their master's thinking and planning. No, I've named you friends because I've let you in on everything I've heard from the Father. When I first called you, you were disciples. You knew that. You know who was in power, and you know, you know who was the teacher, and who was the master, and who was the student. And now I'm calling you friends. I'm asking you to set that kind of stuff aside. I'm, I'm asking you to shift your focus into not just following me, but doing the things that I've taught you modeling love the way that I've modeled it for you because you've heard it from the Father. And we, and we said, and he goes into talking about this like, you know, we're friends. When I first called you, you were like employees, but now you're friends. And we talked about the awkwardness of that at some, at some workplace environments, right? Where you, so maybe your workplace is, has tried to do the whole, you know, you're not employees, you're really friends. And you're like, no, I'm a freaking employee and I, I'm a number and I'm cashing a paycheck. Please do not make this this weird friend thing. You obviously read some book or watched some movie or, or got this whole business article out of some weird thing and, and you're like trying to Michael Scott this thing and it's not going to work because we are not friends, right? In this moment, he has the audacity to say, you're my friends. And what I'm asking you to do is to shift it away from my personal presence that is the glue that holds you together and instead shift it towards living out a certain kind of love, a certain love that feels incredibly foreign in this very self, um, self-important, self-seeking kind of world, to live out a love that feels incredibly other in the selfish and all-consuming world. That's what he's calling them to do. I'm going to be out of the picture pretty soon. Right, and I think John knew this. He 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 would write this uh, many years after this actually occurred, and so as he's reflecting on this, he he can see the ominous language that Jesus is trying to have them do this because this is so important. I don't want this thing to crumble. I don't want it to fall apart. Don't make it about me. Make it about the kind of love that, as I have loved you, so you must learn what it's going to look like to love in this way. Well, what is it going to look like? That's part of the adventure. That's what I'm calling you to do. That's what that's what doing this together is going to be. Exciting. That's going to be the common bond between you. We're all constantly trying to figure out what it would look like to love in the way that Jesus loved. So today I want to look at um, one of the ways that Jesus loved a certain category of people because the idea behind befriend has been a movement towards people we are usually tempted to avoid. That's what I want to do. For the next three weeks, I want to pick a category of people. These would be people that you would normally be, be inclined to avoid being friendly to or kind to or friends with. And I want to say, as we look at the way that Jesus operated, perhaps if we were to love in the way that he did and he commanded us to, we would be then so inclined to not avoid those people for the reasons that we oftentimes do. So today, the shamed and the unashamed, or sorry, today, the shamed and the ashamed. So my question to kick this thing off to get you thinking in the right mindset that I want us to go in is, have you ever posted something? I was going to say, have you ever said something you, you didn't mean to say? But we do that all the time. And that is fine because a lot of times there's nobody else uh, there to kind of judge us. Or we said it in the presence of somebody that we trust. And so we're like, I didn't really mean that. And they're like, oh, I know, I know, I know. You're just joking. In the, mindset, in, in the back of their mind, they're like, he's kind of a jerk, but whatever. Um, but have you ever, but we know that the internet is like, once it's out there, 
Like, it's out there, right? And if you're, if you're good enough to find it, it never goes away. Have you ever posted something you later regretted on some sort of a social media, something you did, it's, it's out there and you, you wish or you have gone back and deleted it because of, the, because of the circumstance. Because somebody encouraged somebody, was like, hey, I really think you should probably take that down. Or you just in your own like, justification go, I, I know I need to do this. So real quick example for you, just to get to it. While, while you're thinking of your own personal one, here's one for me. Super simple, it's cheesy, it's whatever. It's still personal to me. A few weeks ago, the Seahawks played the Rams. Do you remember that? Uh, we play them today against a little bit chance for redemption. But in that game, it was fourth quarter. The Rams were driving, and they got to a fourth and short situation. And they were going to punt. They had sent out their punt team to go out and punt. And some of you guys know exactly where I'm going with this. And Pete Carroll called a timeout like an idiot, right? <laughs> and, sorry. You'll see. And they changed their mind, went for it, got it, and won the game. And basically blew our chances for it. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching this game. I'm going, idiot, idiot, why are you calling a timeout? Don't, oh my gosh, this feels like, this feels like grid kids coach would get this right. And you didn't get it right. And you're the third highest paid coach in the NFL. That's true. And so I'm so bitter and angry that I post on it. That is a ridiculously fireable offense. I'm done with Pete. I'm done. This is, this is worse than calling a pass play on the one-yard line in the Super Bowl. I posted that. Now, you won't find it because I went back and deleted it because it fell into the category for me, like this filter of, all right, if I post something and then I happen to run into this person at some point in life and they knew everything that I posted and said about them publicly, would they still shake my hand? And I don't know if he would. I don't know. I think he'd be like, oh, you think I should not have my job? Is that what you think? Um, and so that has come down unless you have really good search engines and you can maybe find it. But anyways, it has since been deleted. And the reasons why is number one, I don't have very many followers. And B, I think that, and B, here's why, because if you follow me on Twitter, it's uh, humor, sports, humor about sports, uh, and then sometimes pictures of my kids. That's it. So don't come expecting any more because there's just nothing there. So uh, I think pretty much every sane person was also in agreement with me. And so nothing ever came out of that aggressively anti-Pete Carroll post. But have, do you remember in 2013, if you're not on Twitter, that's fine. Like I'm, I, I'm, I'm, this is not a pro or con. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that has the ability to be a platform for us that feels very like it gives us all a big stage to really rise up and say what we feel like we need to say. Um, in 2013, there was a hashtag that got trending worldwide and uh, it was uh, the hashtag, has Justine landed yet? Do anybody remember this? I can't see you, so I, you can be like, I don't know, you can be raising your hand or not, but it doesn't matter. Justine, has Justine landed yet? Here's the backstory to this in case you forget or maybe when I start talking about you, don't remember. Uh, a woman named Justine Sacco was a PR exec for a company called ICO. Um, she was traveling for the holidays to go visit family in South Africa. She left JFK where she lived. She went to Heathrow Airport and during her half hour layover uh, posted a tweet of 12 words, 12 words to her 170 followers. I will not repeat the words up on this stage. You can Google that for yourself. Uh, needless to say, they were uh, offensive, uh, racist, blah, 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 blah. Terrible, right? And in her defense, like she would say misinterpreted, but... I don't know. Anyways, um, 
She posts that, waits for a half hour on the landing strip or the, in the boarding area, whatever, no response, nothing. Nothing from even her friends, like, ha-ha, whatever. She's trying to be funny, but... Um, she then uh, hears the flight attendant say, we're closing the door for departure, so please put your airplanes and air, phones in airplane mode. And the flight from Heathrow to South Africa, 11 hours. So 11 hours of no cell phone service. She falls asleep. Uh, in the meantime, her tweet is picked up by somebody who finds out that she's a PR exec at some public company, uh, and, and it's offensive, begins to retweet it out to his 140,000 followers, and that just gets... Can you believe, can you believe, can you believe, can you believe that somebody would say, can you believe, can you believe? And it goes viral like crazy, right? Um, so in the 11-hour time frame, it goes to the number one trending topic worldwide. Um, she f- is about to find out that she got fired from her company um, when she turns her phone. In fact, she, gets, she lands, she turns her phone on. There's a message from uh, one of her friends that says, I'm so sorry all of this is happening to you. And she's going, like, what are you talking about? Um, and then another tweet from her best friend that says, you need to call me immediately and take that post down as fast as you can, which it never goes away, guys, right? Um, and uh, then she finds out she's been temporarily suspended, eventually fired from her company, her family in South Africa are disappointed with her. All of the, it's, it was a terrible situation. In her reflections after the fact, looking back on it, she said this, I had a great career, I loved my job, and it was taken away from me, and there was a lot of glory in that. Everybody else was very happy about that. And it became kind of this like Twitter mob that we we're all kind of have seen. And I could have picked, by the way, like probably five or six other different options, probably some that were a little more recent. And you would have known exactly what was taking place and, and been like, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. Somebody said the wrong thing, did something dumb. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah, but are you? I mean, come on. It's in you. It came out of you. So therefore, we don't really have any grace in this area on this thing, right? A journalist for the New York Times Magazine wrote a story on it just two years after the fact. So 2015, this was in December of 2015, so just a couple years ago. His name's John Bronson. The title of the article is called How One Stupid Tweet Blew Up Justine Sacco's Life. By the way, um, I sent a link to the full article, because I think it's a great read, um, to the, the notes thing. So if you type the word notes and send that in a text to 97,000, you'll get a link. Um, and, or eastlakechristcities.com slash notes, either way. Uh, go there through your browser, you can see the whole article in there. But I'll, I'll just read a, a small section for you. In those early days, the collective fury felt righteous, powerful, and effective. It felt as if hierarchies were being dismantled. This is a guy who's writing as somebody who was part of the early part of getting this thing out about her, her thing, he, or about what she said. And he remembers this vividly and, and was an active participant in this. And he's like, in that moment, it felt good. It felt like, yeah. White privilege is being attacked. There's hierarchies being dismantled as if justice were being democratized. As time passed, though, I watched these shame campaigns multiply to the point that they targeted not just powerful institutions and public figures, but really anyone perceived to have done something offensive. I also begin to marvel at the disconnect between the severity of the crime and the gleeful savagery of the punishment. It almost felt as if shamings were now happening for their own sake, as if they were following a script. Eventually, I started to wonder about the recipients of our shamings, the real humans who were the virtual targets of these campaigns. Eventually, he says, I realize these are not just like non-existent people. Like I forgot these are actual people with actual lives that were ruined. It feels good to ruin them, but then I actually, he's like, I got to know Justine after the fact not to justify what she said, but to watch the effects of this 
mob-ish mentality of, or mob-shaming in this way. And he realizes he's processing through this. And the article really is about mob-shaming and, and wh- why do we like it so much? Why are we so ingrained in this way? What is, what is the damage that's actually done in this? Um, so he, uh, he decided to do some research on uh, the idea of public shaming and kind of where this came from. Uh, that we, because I'm about to go into a story where there's a public shaming that takes place in John chapter 8, but before I do, um, we, we can see this, in whether we think it's a modern phenomenon, or if I go and I say, yeah, there's a story about public shaming in, in, in the Bible too, you'd be like, yeah, but that was so ancient, like we're not really, we don't really think in that way, or that's not really a part of us, except for the fact that when he goes back, and with John Ronson goes back into public court records on the East Coast, um, uh, about punishments that were like a public shaming sort of thing. He found several different options, uh, specifically one that shows up on July 15th, 1742. A woman named Abigail Gilpin, her husband is at sea, had been found naked in bed with one John Russell. They were both to be whipped at the public whipping post, which means that they had a public whipping post. What is that? This is the fountain, this is the courtyard, this is the uh, courthouse, that's the whipping post, that's the, uh, can you imagine, we're all going to gather together, there's a public whipping at two, we should, if we do this quickly, we can be at happy hour by three. (laughs) Crazy! 1742, America, not like somewhere else, okay? America. They were both to be whipped at the public whipping post, 20 stripes each. Remember when the kid in Singapore, I just remember this too, the kid in Singapore got caned a few years ago. Remember that too? I, like that whole idea of, uh, of that public thing. Anyways, that, that's not in it here. In the court records, Abigail was appealing the ruling, not because she wanted to avoid the whipping. She was appealing the timing. She was begging the judge to let her be whipped early before the town was awake. I'm not avoiding the punishment. I know what I did was wrong. But what I'm asking of you is to not do it while people are out there to see me. I, can't, I don't want to avoid And here was her justification. Haven't I done enough to embarrass my children? Do they really need to see their mother whipped for the stuff publicly? Are they, they're going to live with, they're going to be known as the kid whose mom got whipped publicly. That was her justification. Which, like, it makes sense. He's like, oh my gosh, it humanizes it for a moment. Oh my word. This is unbelievable. Now, if you think 1742, that was so long ago. Well, yeah, except that it didn't get outlawed, public whippings, until 1839 federally, and not until 1972 in the state of Delaware. What? That's for trivia for you later. And here's why in 1839 they decided, you know what, we're going to stop doing these public whippings, shaming things. Here was the justification. Well-meaning people in a crowd often take punishment too far. Well-meaning people in a crowd, something happens when people get together, and they often take punishment too far. Therefore, we should not do this publicly. This should be privately, even though your name's, you know, nowadays your name's getting the paper or whatever, but that's different. Obviously, that's different this way. Listen, a very clear example of this takes place in the book of John, uh, or in, in John's letter uh, about the teaching of the person of Jesus. And it's, it's unique because this story wasn't recorded in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Um, John specifically recalls this, and for whatever reason thinks that this is an important deal. Um, uh, verse 2, uh, he, it's, it's almost as if he goes, I remember a time when I'm thinking back on what does it mean for Jesus to, to follow Jesus and loving others the way that he loved um, us. 
I would imagine that there would be probably a list of five, seven, ten things that he would say, he loved us uniquely. What I remember most about the way that Jesus loved me was, and at the top of this list would be, I remember watching him with a woman caught in adultery in the way that he handled that situation. Because you've been around people who like are smarter than you in certain situations. The way that they handle conflict, maybe it's a boss at work that like it just overwhelms you, but he or she has this ability to kind of like transcend the moment and say all the right things in the right times. You're like, I just, you say it so much better. Like, why don't, ah, this is so great, right? This is John recalling this event, probably living this out, right? Verse 2, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts. This is Jesus, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Side note for one second. They could have done this at any time. I really highly doubt that at that very moment, the timing just happened to be right. The stars aligned. We just caught her. He's teaching. Let's take it now. I imagine they got caught. She got caught sometime in the night or in the evening or whatever the night before, and they're like, hold on. Let's wait. Let's not do this in a, pub, in a private setting. Let's wait until he's drawn his biggest crowd and everybody's, everybody's attention is already there, and then let's make her stand up there with us. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law of Moses. It commands us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say, right? Because what are they doing? They're, they're mad because he's successful. They're mad because he's teaching this like grace type stuff. And is drawing a crowd, in fact, drawing a lot of people that they're supposed to be drawing, people who are nothing like Jesus, like Jesus, and they don't like that fact of it. And he keeps talking about grace and grace and grace and love and all this kind of stuff, and they're like, yeah, but come on, there's got to be a line somewhere. You can't just do everything that you want to do, right? Therefore, let's, let's put them in a position where there's going to be a line that's obviously a crossing, adultery throughout the centuries. I mean, like even outside of Christian law, we're like, we frown on adultery, right? We're like, that's, come on, don't do that. Don't cheat on your husband. So this is not a religious issue. This goes beyond this. Surely in this moment, he's going to say that there must be some justice that needs to be done. He's not going to like leverage grace here, right? Because at that point, he's kind of given everything away in this point. But the way in which they did it, right? This is the hard part. Probably strategically planning when they're going to present her, making her stand up in front, treating her as an object, not as an actual person. This is not a woman, but a thing. This is not the image of God, but subhuman trash. I can't believe that this kind of thing exists and blah, 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 and all of these different focuses. And they're forming a mob around a common enemy. What they've done successfully is find somebody who everybody can be against. It didn't matter who or what it was. This is somebody, can't we all in agreement from all different walks of life point at and say, not good, not good. This was the group think of insecure, small-minded men. They were looking for a way to medicate their fragile egos at the expense of a a scapegoat. In fact, Brene Brown talks about this in a lot of her work on shame. If you've read any of her stuff, the reason we enjoy shame is because for some sick reason, it makes us feel better about ourselves. We're so ashamed about us that if we can quantify it in the life of somebody else, then ours doesn't look as bad or we're we refuse to deal with our own shame. And so by dealing with yours, it feels like I'm making some sort of progress. So if we can bring them together and say, isn't this, isn't this bad? Isn't this horrible? Shouldn't we all be all against this? It feels good in that moment to be against that. 
to join in the mob. So it's important to get to the bottom of why we too enjoy the caricature and the labeling and why we too are prone to like and share when somebody else's whole life is reduced to their most foolish, offensive, public moment. And that's exactly what we've done. We look for their foolish, really dumb, Justine, self-admittedly, terrible decision, dumb post, shouldn't have said it, don't really think that way. Then why'd you do it? I mean, we, we immediately go, yeah, but I mean, it's in there, so there's something. Can't just let it go entirely. And we judge them, and we jump on them, and we vilify them for their worst moments. And for us, we, we know that we're not perfect. We're just in those moments, thankful that we've got a better filter than, than they do. And we know that, we're, that we've probably done some things that probably deserve some pretty significant shame too, but instead of dealing with that and working on that, it feels better to point out the obvious one and the worst part of their life. So John, I, I gotta think that when he is sitting down and is asked from the people that he was attended church with or in community with, hey, you knew and saw Jesus. He was, like, he called you one of his favorites. Tell us about him. He goes, I remember that day when they brought the woman to see him and asked him this question, tried to box him in this corner. And he sits down and begins to write in the sand. And they're like, Jesus, this is no time for Pictionary. Come on, we got, we got an issue here. We need something, we need some resolution for and Jesus has this super, again, one of those moments you're like, he's just so good at this stuff, man. He says, all right, I'm in, I'm on board, but let him who has no sin throw the first stone, right? And it's probably quiet. Everybody's kind of looking around like, oh, it's, I'm not going first because everybody knows I can't go first. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even think I'm qualified to go 10th, right? I'm like, I'm at the very end when everybody's arms are tired. That's when I'm like, all right, we can let Brent throw. <laughs> and slowly, one stone, I like to, this doesn't, isn't recorded, this is Brent's interpretation of this, but I imagine that somebody at the very front decides, well, I know it can't be me, drops their stone, and then another stone drops, and another stone drops, and another stone drops, and another stone drops. And they all begin to walk away, probably slowly, probably like, we're still trying to make sense of all this, we don't know exactly where we stand. Jesus kneels down to the woman and says, is there anybody left to condemn you? She looks around, nobody, Lord. Then neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. And in that moment, I would imagine that John goes, that was one of those redemptive, see-through-the-pain moments that I've ever been a part of. And when I think about how I'm supposed to love others the way that he loved me and the way that I saw him love, that's the kind of person I want to be like. Because I had imagined in that moment, this woman is looking up into the eyes of this person that she probably never met. He's, he's a rabbi. He's some sort of powerful person because everybody has questions for him. But she's not, he's not the savior of the world to her. He's not the Messiah. He's just somebody. Somebody with clearly a reputation that is intact. And she looks up at him probably, and without words, but with eyes looking at him going, why are you doing this? Why would you risk that for me? Why would somebody like you want anything to do with somebody like me? In my worst possible moment, don't you know, association with me is toxic. You're ruining yourself by being associated with me. Why would you ever, ever do this? 
Such a powerful moment. And I think John in that moment goes, he get it. He gets it. He understood it. He was doing something so different, and I want to be a part of that. I want to move towards people who, even in their worst moments, are not beyond the scope of grace. Yes, they live in shame, but I, shame for their actions, but I, I can come alongside them in that moment at risk to myself, at risk to my reputation, when it doesn't make sense to other people, and say, and not justify what they said. Hey, what you did was fine. It's okay. It's all good. No, no, no. Wrong. But neither do I condemn you. I will risk myself. I will leverage whatever influence and power I have for your benefit, for your sake, and move on. I think that, I think that John, that would have been one of the top three stories for him when he looks about what's, what was unique about the way that Jesus loved. Nobody else would do this. Nobody else would do that. And yet he did it. And we should do the same. We should move towards the shamed and the ashamed. We should be known for that. Now, I want to add something here at the end. This is a great stopping point. This is like hopefully wrapped in a bow, and you're like, okay, that's really good. If I'm, I'm, I don't know anybody right now that's in that season of life, but I want to be the type of person when that takes place, when my friend does something really stupid, when there's an affair that takes place that I don't like run and, start and keep on the gossip train, but I'm, I'm in there, and I'm trying to help out with the mess or whatever, right? Um, that's great. That's, that's super good, but an important piece that I was thinking through, and this is like... This is a little extra. This isn't even in the notes, but I was thinking through about how the motives for why I should do this. And if the motive is because that makes me a good person, then the danger that that can lead to would be, I know why God loves me because I'm so lovable when I do all of these things. If I can do this, then it makes sense why God would love somebody like me. And what that does is it removes us, it, puts, it removes us from being recipients of grace, it removes us from seeing ourselves in, in this woman. We see ourselves as Jesus in this story. Do you see that's the problem? When we see ourselves as Jesus in this story, um, then God's kind of lucky to have us on the team. It's a pride and it's an ego thing. And we don't really see ourselves as the woman who looks up and really lives their entire life saying, I don't know why you would ever want anything to do with somebody like me. I've got areas of shame. Now, I may be better at hiding it and it's not as public as other people. But there are things about me, if you knew everything, and you're God, of course you do, you would, why would you ever want to associate with me? Don't you know I would be toxic to you? I don't know that I can live up to your Christian standard. I'm, I'm like, I want to come to church, but I don't want to like put out the thing that I'm a Christian because I'm so scared for what that could mean to you, right? <clears throat> we don't see ourselves as the woman looking up and saying, uh, I could really use some grace right now. So my challenge to us is, yes, we, I want to be the type of person that moves towards people who are shamed and ashamed, but I also want to make sure that I do it not because if I do and when I do, God's lucky to have me on his team or that makes me lovable, but because I'm a mirror of the grace that has already been extended to me to some degree. 
that that's, that's who I am. I see myself in that. And I want to do for others what I would want done for me. So therefore, 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 I move. I befriend people who are in and experiencing high levels of shame. Let's pray. Father, uh, we may not have a specific face or name in mind right now about what this looks like, but we pray that you would guide us, that your spirit would be in us. In those moments, something, when we hear these stories and we go through life and we, we read about or hear about or whatever, that you would just prick something in our conscience to be like, that might be somebody that needs me to move towards them in this way. And may, when we do this, may it be done for the right reasons, not to prove something to you or to earn something from you. May we not see ourselves as Jesus in this story, but as somebody who would want this done for us because that really is the same position for us. Martin Luther once said, there but for the grace of God go I. That would be us too. That's that's us. That could just as very well be us. I'm not perfect. There's no way out of my perfection I could avoid this. Um, That could easily just have been me. May that be in our forefront of our minds as we go through this thing called life and learn what it takes to love in the way that you love. Give us the wisdom to know what to do with that and the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.